1: It's often difficult to trace the origins of certain stories of the strange and paranormal. For example, all across the globe and throughout history, you can find legends of elusive, hairy, ape-man hominids. So therefore, it's pretty difficult to say who first came up with the idea of Bigfoot. Likewise, throughout medieval Europe, you can find tales of small humanoid creatures who can often be categorized under the overarching term changelings. These creatures were believed to steal children and replace them with a look-alike copy. A copy that was very similar to the original child, but still not quite right. Germany, Poland, Russia, and many other countries all have legends of such creatures, each giving them their own local flavor and characteristics. But it's from Ireland where we get another word for such creatures that we know much more commonly today. Fairies. Now keep in mind, according to Irish folklore, not all fairies are changelings, but all changelings are fairies, if that makes sense. And the two legends intertwine constantly. And it's through these legends from centuries ago of small humanoid beings who abduct humans in the night that we can perhaps start to see the beginnings of an entirely modern branch of folklore that continues even today. I'm talking about alien abduction. Paranormal researchers who have studied the phenomenon known as alien abduction say such tales all began to originate back during the 1940s and 1950s. It mostly started around June of 1947 when an amateur pilot named Kenneth Arnold claimed to have seen several floating disc-shaped objects while flying over Mount Rainier. Back then, an overeager reporter misreported the description Arnold gave to him about the objects, and the name Flying Saucers stuck ever since. From there, the world began to enter a period of Flying Saucer Fever as thousands more stories of strange objects in the sky began to be reported each week. As the public became increasingly fascinated with the idea that there were otherworldly visitors coming to Earth, so too did the stories continue to take on a life of their own from there about who these extraterrestrial visitors were, and what they were doing here. One other thing I should point out is that not all such stories originated after Kenneth Arnold's encounter. Plenty of science fiction stories existed long before 1947 that told all sorts of wild tales about aliens from another world. In July 1946, a full year before Kenneth Arnold gave his UFO report, Planet Comics ran a strip in which aliens used a glowing tractor beam to snatch a beautiful female Earthling and take her to a planet that looks an awful lot like Saturn in order to breed with their alien males to maintain the survival of their species. According to some researchers, this may be the earliest known example of a story featuring what we would describe today as an alien abduction. But that was just a comic book story. In 1954, a Venezuelan magazine article described an alleged real-life alien encounter that happened to two teenage boys. The teens claimed to have stumbled across a spaceship in the woods near their village. The boys were then attacked by some small, hairy aliens who attempted to kidnap them. The teens narrowly escaped after they were able to fight back by using an unloaded rifle as a club. In 1957, a Brazilian reporter began to catalog several such stories in a series of articles about close encounters with extraterrestrial visitors. The most prominent such story was that of a 23-year-old farmer named Antonio Villas Boas who claimed to have been abducted by aliens. This story, many paranormal investigators say, would become the blueprint for even more alien abduction stories yet to come. According to the story, Velas Boas was out plowing his field at night to avoid the scorching rays of the afternoon sun, when he saw a strange red light in the sky. As he stared in disbelief, this light came rapidly closer, revealing itself to be a metallic craft that landed in a field nearby. Vilas Boas tried to run away, but several small humanoid creatures emerged from the spaceship and dragged him inside. The farmer then claimed that these small creatures performed a series of experiments on him, including taking skin samples and exposing him to a gas that made him violently ill. Undoubtedly, the most lurid part of the tale was when Vilas Boas claimed that they introduced him to an attractive blonde female alien, who they encouraged him to mate with i'll just leave that part of the story up to your imagination now keep in mind there's a lot about the tale told by antonio villas boas that skeptics have rightly poked holes at for example it's notable to mention that the farmer's description of the alien spacecraft seems awfully low-tech for one thing the super advanced aliens used rope ladders to get in and out of the ship there is also the fact that the overall description Vilas Boas gave of the ship itself, with its three or four antennas poking out of it, sounds suspiciously like the Sputnik 1, the Russian satellite that would have been front-page news at the time. The story of Antonio Vilas Boas's alleged alien abduction might have been written off as an amusing little anecdote in UFO lore, were it not for another even more famous incident that occurred four years later in 1961 this is the story that every ufo researcher points to for having created an entirely new mythology surrounding alien abductions everything from close encounters of the third kind to the x-files to the thousands of alleged alien abductions that are reported each year all lead back to this one incident that was when an american couple named betty and barney hill shocked the world after they came forward claiming they had been abducted by aliens but while we can think of the story of Antonio Villas-Boas as simply an amusing hoax, there are plenty of people today who believe the alien abduction of Betty and Barney Hill actually happened. I'm Nate Hale, beaming my thoughts directly to you from inside the Black Knight satellite, and this is The Conspirators. When you think of everything pop culture has told us about alien abductions, the strange lights in the sky, the gray aliens, the invasive experiments, the missing time, the whole nine yards, everything can be traced back to the story of Betty and Barney Hill. Now, whereas the seeds of such stories had already been planted in the public's imagination, such as the comic book story about the woman who was kidnapped and taken to Saturn for breeding... Everything we think we know about alien abductions all stems from the story of Betty and Barney Hill. Over the years, some skeptics have suggested that the Hills were just making it all up for public attention. But the Hills never seemed like those sort of people. In fact, for a couple years after their alleged alien abduction, the Hills did everything they could to avoid the public spotlight. Betty and Barney Hill were unusual for the 1960s in that They were an interracial couple at a time when such marriages would have still been illegal in several states. The Hills lived in a red frame tenement house in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. In 1961, Betty was a busy 42-year-old child social worker with a heavy caseload. Barney was a 39-year-old postal employee. Each night, Barney made the hour-plus commute to the Boston Post Office 60 miles away where he worked. In their spare time, the couple remained active in both their church and in the civil rights movement. Barney was a member of the NAACP and had participated in numerous rallies pushing for equal rights for African Americans. By all accounts, Barney Hill was a straight shooter, and as honest and sincere as they come. He was an Army veteran and a former Eagle Scout, with a reported IQ of 140, which is on the upper edge of extreme intelligence in psychological terms. So I think you have to agree that just on the surface, these don't seem like the sort of people who would be prone to making up wild stories. But the story they did tell was, quite literally, out of this world. September 15th, 1961 was a Friday. Betty Hill was getting ready to take a much-needed week off from her job when her husband Barney came home and surprised her. At that point, the couple had been married for a year and three months. And one thing they never got the chance to do before was have a proper honeymoon. When Barney came home that evening, he told Betty he'd made arrangements with his boss to take some time off as well, and that he thought it would be fun if they packed their bags and take a road trip to Niagara Falls for the honeymoon they never had. Betty loved the idea. Because it was already Friday night, the couple didn't have time to get to the bank to withdraw any money. So that meant they only had about $70 between them. But the Hills were used to being frugal and believed they could make their money stretch throughout their trip. The following morning, Betty packed their blue and white Chevy Bel Air with their bags and a cooler containing some food. They brought their and Delcie with them, along with Barney's gun that they stowed in the trunk. Then they headed off on their road trip. They drove through Vermont and up toward Niagara Falls and then into Canada. Then they went to Toronto, then towards Montreal where they ended up getting lost. They asked for directions, but because most of the people they asked only spoke French, they had a difficult time figuring out where they were in this era long before GPS. At one point, they heard a report on the car's radio of a massive tropical storm that was due to strike the east coast with winds up to 130 miles an hour. They decided at that point it would be best if they turned around and started heading home. They decided to drive straight through the night heading east past the White Mountains on a path that would take them through a dense, tree-lined forest. Late that night, Betty began to notice a strange, bright light in the sky hovering just above the tree line. Betty's father was really into all things outer space, and she had picked up her father's love for such things as well. At first, Betty thought she was seeing a satellite in the distance. But then she began to notice how strangely the light appeared to dart around in the sky then Betty began to wonder out loud if they might be looking at a real flying saucer. Barney had always been much more skeptical and level-headed than Betty. And he told her it was probably just an airplane. But Betty didn't think so. And she made Barney pull over so they could get a better look at the peculiar light with the binoculars they had brought with them. For a while, the light remained at a distance. But... It always stayed within their line of sight. It kept zooming around in different directions in a zigzag pattern that Betty insisted to Barney that no earthly aircraft could do. As the couple continued traveling south along the highway, they pulled over several more times before they realized the light appeared to be following them. At one point, Barney retrieved his pistol from the trunk of the car. Remember, they were in the middle of the woods and it would have been incredibly dark all around them. The light they saw was easily the brightest object in the night sky. What was even more concerning to them was that, after a while, the light began to grow steadily larger, as if it were moving toward them. When the hills reached an area called Indian Head, the light grew so big and bright in the sky that Barney brought the car to a screeching halt in a field. Then he did something that was either incredibly brave or incredibly stupid, depending on how you look at it. Barney got out of the car and began walking closer to the object. By now, both Betty and Barney Hill could clearly see that what they were looking at was a brightly lit, flat, circular disc hovering about 100 feet above the ground. As Barney stepped closer to the craft holding his binoculars, two glowing flaps extended out from both sides. That was when Barney peered up through the binoculars and realized someone was staring back at him. It appeared the craft had windows, and through those windows Barney could see at least a half a dozen humanoid figures peering out the window back at him. Barney's blood ran cold, and he could feel his heart hammering in his chest. Then when he realized the craft was lowering some sort of ramp toward the ground, Barney turned and bolted back to the car. He slammed the door and cranked on the engine. He screamed at Betty that they were going to capture them as he sped away as fast as he could, but the craft remained hot on their trail. It quickly moved from being right behind them to hovering directly over their car. At that point, the hills began to feel a tremendous vibration that shook both the car and themselves right down to their bones. Barney later described it as feeling like a giant tuning fork had been struck. Then for a brief time, the buzzing stopped, but then it came right back again. And that's when things began to get fuzzy for the couple. They later recalled being back on the road and seeing a bright moon, then hearing a strange beeping noise. At one point, Betty asked Barney if he believed in flying saucers now, but Barney told her no, of course not. But these were just little hazy scraps of memory. The next really clear memory the Hills had was as they were pulling back up to their house in Portsmouth around 5 a.m., just as dawn was breaking. It would take Betty and Barney some time to realize just how peculiar even this was. Because this meant their three-hour drive had actually taken closer to five hours to complete. Meaning, somehow they had lost two hours of time driving home that neither one of them could remember. At first, the Hills didn't seem particularly worried about all this. In fact, they didn't feel much of anything. They spent the morning in what they described as a sort of euphoric haze, They remained oddly calm and peaceful as they went about the morning. At the same time, they also had the constant urge to stare out their windows at the sky above. On top of that, they also had the strange sensation that they somehow weren't alone. Betty was feeling unusually unclean and went to take a shower. Barney went up to the car to unpack. But before he could bring their belongings into the house, Betty told him to leave their bags on the front porch in case they were radioactive or somehow contaminated. When the couple finally began to talk about what had happened, Barney told Betty that this was the most remarkable thing that had ever happened to him in his life. Betty wanted to phone the police or call somebody, anybody, and tell them what had happened. But Barney tried to convince her that they shouldn't. He thought it would hurt their standing in the community, and in particular their credibility with the civil rights movement. Besides that, he said, even if they did say something, no one would believe them anyway. Betty did end up calling her sister Janet to tell her what she could remember about the night before. Janet was supportive. She believed in UFOs, and she had even once had her own sighting of a strange object in the sky that she couldn't explain. Over the following days, Betty and Barney continued to discuss what had happened to them in an attempt to figure out why neither one of them could remember a big chunk of the night they saw the flying saucer. Barney suggested they each try drawing the craft as they remembered it. Betty and Barney sketched the flying saucer out of sight of one another, saw that they couldn't influence each other, and when they compared their drawings, they were practically identical. In addition, the Hills also realized they had brought back with them some actual physical evidence that neither one of them could explain. Betty's dress that she had been wearing had a few mystery tears in it and some unidentified stains. After that night, Betty put the dress away in a closet and never wore it again. Barney's shoes, which he always kept in pristine condition, were now all scuffed and scraped up. Both of them had been wearing wristwatches the night of their encounter, yet both watches stopped working at the same time. The strap to Barney's binoculars were broken as well, although he couldn't for the life of him remember how it had occurred. Delcie, the couple's formerly healthy dachshund, began experiencing a number of physical ailments. Then there was the couple's car. Betty noticed there were a bunch of strange circular marks in the paint on the car's trunk that weren't there before. Most of these circular marks were each around the size of a quarter and couldn't be rubbed out. Betty's sister Janet had a neighbor who was a physicist. He suggested they take a compass and hold it over the circular spots. When they did, the compass needle began spinning wildly as if the trunk had become magnetized. Betty finally convinced Barney that they needed to call somebody official and report what they saw. They phoned Pease Air Force Base and gave a report to one of the officers, Major Paul Henderson, who later reported that he thought the couple had misidentified the planet Jupiter. That report would eventually make its way to the U.S. government's official unit for studying flying saucers, Project Blue Book. But after that, there wasn't much follow up, and Betty and Barney Hill were left feeling unsatisfied. Betty decided to do her own research by heading to the Portsmouth Public Library and checking out every book on flying saucers she could find. One of the books she found was The Flying Saucer Conspiracy by Major Donald Kehoe. Major Kehoe was the head of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, or NICAP, the largest civilian group on the study of UFOs in the country. Betty wrote a letter to Major Kehoe describing her UFO encounter. Betty's letter was then sent to Walter Webb, a Boston astronomer and NICAP member. Webb interviewed the Hills for six hours and came away convinced that they were telling the truth. Then, ten days after their UFO encounter, Betty Hill began to experience terrible nightmares that continued for five successive nights. These were the most vivid dreams she'd ever experienced in her life. In one dream, she recalled she and Barney coming to some sort of roadblock made up of a group of smallish humanoid beings surrounding the car. She remembered panicking, then one of the creatures touching her and a strange sense of calm overtaking her. In Betty's dream, she recalled two small men leading her through the forest and up into the flying saucer. These creatures were humanoid and bipedal. They were bald with grayish skin, large heads, cat-like eyes, and thin, bluish lips. They wore blue-gray uniforms that reminded her of military jumpsuits. This was the very first description in history of the most commonly reported species of alien, one that has invaded our pop culture lexicon and become collectively known as the Greys. In Betty's dreams, she and Barney were led up a ramp into the ship, where the creatures separated the couple and led them into two different rooms she recalled talking to one of the beings she came to think of as the leader. This one was different from the others because he actually spoke English, although not particularly well. There was an examiner Betty met who also spoke broken English. The examiner told Betty they were going to conduct a series of tests on her. They removed her dress and laid her down on a metal table. Then the creatures took some skin scrapings, cut off a lock of her hair, and took some trimmings from her fingernails. At one point, one of the beings produced a gigantic needle and Betty was told he was going to insert it into her navel. Betty panicked and begged the aliens not to do it. The examiner told her it wouldn't hurt and that they were conducting a pregnancy test. But the aliens lied. The needle did hurt. The pain was excruciating as he slid it into her navel. When Betty began crying out in pain, the leader waved his hand over her eyes and suddenly the pain vanished. Once the tests were done, the examiner left the room and Betty began to engage in a conversation with the leader. She picked up a book with rows of strange symbols on it and asked the leader if she could take it with her as proof. At first, the leader agreed, but later a disagreement would break out between the leader and some of the others and the book was taken away from her. When Betty asked the leader where they had come from, he produced a three-dimensional map showing a series of dots that she understood to be stars and planets. Several of these dots had lines connecting them that the leader explained were trade routes. Betty tried to get the leader to show her where Earth's sun was in relation to the rest, but the leader told her she wouldn't remember it even if he showed her. The next thing Betty recalled from her dreams was being back in the car with Barney and of the two of them driving away.
0: Hey y'all spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps.
1: Before we continue, I need to tell you about this episode's sponsor, ExpressVPN. So listen, here's the deal. I'm always on the go. And I'm always researching new topics for this show. And as you can imagine, that means I'm always looking up some pretty weird stuff. When I'm in a public space like a coffee shop looking up details about a serial killer or some other horrific event, it's probably a good idea for me to protect my browsing history. Not to mention what a great idea it is to protect my private data from industrious hackers who might be trying to peek inside my laptop. On top of all that, the next thing I have to concern myself with is what my local internet service provider is doing with my private data. Internet service providers operate like monopolies in the regions they serve. Even worse, many ISPs log your internet activity and sell that data on to other big tech companies or advertisers. To prevent them from seeing my internet activity, I protect my devices with ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is a simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server so that your provider can't see any of your activity. The list of people you've messaged, sites you visited, and videos you've watched gets tracked by tech giants who can sell them your information for profit. I recommend ExpressVPN as the best way to hide your online activity from your ISP. Just download the app, tap one button, and you're protected. And ExpressVPN doesn't slow your connection. That's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, TechRadar, and countless others. Right now, conspirators listeners can get access to all the privacy protection ExpressVPN offers, and can get a pretty good deal as well by signing up and getting three extra months free. That's right, free! All you need to do to take advantage of this offer is visit ExpressVPN.com/tc. That's E X P R E S S VPN.com/tc, and you'll get three extra months free. ExpressVPN.com/tc to learn more. And now, back to the show. Over the following months, the Hills tried to pick up the pieces of their lives and carry on as normal. But nothing felt normal to them ever again. Betty had difficulty concentrating at work. Barney had trouble sleeping and began having all sorts of medical issues including high blood pressure and ulcers. He also developed a series of unusual warts around his genitals that had to be surgically removed. By February of 1962, the couple had begun taking weekend drives back to the White Mountains, hoping it might help spark their memories the parts of the night they couldn't recall. On November 23, 1962, the Hills attended a meeting at their church where the guest speaker was a U.S. Air Force officer named Captain Ben Sweat. Captain Sweat told the crowd that he was an amateur hypnotist. Later on, Betty and Barney approached Captain Sweat and asked him if he would hypnotize them to help them recover some of their lost memories. But the captain declined, telling the Hills he was still just an amateur and didn't want to end up causing more harm than good. But he did tell them it might be a good idea to find someone more skilled than he was to help them find the answers they were looking for. The Hills did eventually find a professional who agreed to hypnotize them. This was after Barney went to see a psychiatrist about the stress causing his ulcers. That psychiatrist became interested in Barney's story about his missing time, and he recommended that the Hills go see Dr. Benjamin Simon, a Boston-based specialist in hypnotic regression therapy. Dr. Simon was highly regarded in his field. During the war, he had helped a number of veterans experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder deal with their problems through his use of hypnotic regression. Basically, this meant having the person in the hypnotic trance mentally go back in time to dredge up any sort of traumatic memories they might have suppressed. Dr. Simon was interested in Betty and Barney's story, but he also remained highly skeptical as well. Simon didn't believe in aliens or flying saucers, and he just assumed there must be some underlying issues that would have caused them to concoct such a crazy story. He was upfront with the Hills about his disbelief in what they were telling him. He also told them that hypnosis was just a tool, and an imperfect one at that. He couldn't guarantee that whatever he uncovered would be helpful in the long run, nor could he guarantee that what they revealed would even be the objective truth. But the Hills were desperate for answers and agreed to be hypnotized. Dr. Simon spent the next six months putting Betty and Barney Hill through a series of hypnotic regressions. You can find audio recordings of these sessions online, but let me tell you, they are not easy to listen to. Betty and Barney are clearly terrified. Barney in particular sounds horribly traumatized. In the recordings, Barney is sobbing and at one point actually begs Dr. Simon to please don't make him remember what happened. But remember they did. Betty told Dr. Simon under hypnosis a story that remained practically identical to the series of vivid dreams she'd had over the course of five nights, not long after their abduction. But this time, she was able to recall the incident with even more vivid details, including one humorous moment where some of the aliens who had been examining Barney in another room came rushing into her exam room, clearly unsettled. They were worried because they had accidentally removed Barney's false teeth Betty recalled laughing and tried to explain those were just Barney's dentures and they they were just a natural sign of aging, but the aliens didn't understand. Barney Hill told a story that lined up almost perfectly with Betty's story. He said that once they were taken aboard the alien spaceship, he was led into a different room than Betty. He recalled scraping his shoes as they led him into the room. When they brought him into the examination room, they made him disrobe and lie down on a metal table. The table was too short for him and his feet dangled off the end. Like Betty, Barney was put through a physical examination by the aliens. They took skin scrapings and hair samples. He recalled at one point being made to lie in his stomach. After that, the alien spent some time examining the vertebrae in his back. He also felt what he said was a relatively painless rectal exam. When he was lying on his back once again, Barney said he remembered the aliens opening his mouth, which might have been the time they removed his dentures. He also recalled them placing some sort of gel-like substance around his genitals, and he thought they might have taken a sperm sample as well. While Betty said she actually spoke to a couple of the aliens in English, Barney said the only words he heard the aliens speak around him sounded like guttural gibberish. At the same time, they were still able to communicate with him through what he described as thought transference. After six months of hypnosis sessions, Dr. Simon came to the ultimate conclusion that Betty and Barney Hill were being sincere in their belief about what had happened to them. But nonetheless, Dr. Simon remained a skeptic, and he believed there must be some earthly explanation where these bizarre memories had come from. Dr. Simon speculated that the original details of the alleged alien abduction actually originated from Betty's vivid dreams which she then told to Barney, causing him to believe them as well. Dr. Simon also came to speculate that the real cause of the couple's trauma actually stemmed from the very real stresses of society the couple felt all around them. He thought the Hills were likely suffering from undue anxiety brought on by them being an interracial couple in a country where racism was highly prevalent, and their relationship would have incited anger and hatred everywhere. On the weekend of their trip, they undoubtedly encountered some of the pervasive racism that was ingrained into society everywhere. This was still a time when African Americans were forced to consult the so-called Green Book, a travel guide that showed African Americans safe places to eat and stay. On the night in question, Betty and Barney would have also been short on cash and sleep-deprived as they drove through the night to return home all of which Dr. Simon believed added up to them imagining a story about an alien encounter. The Hills strongly disagreed with this assessment, but all they could do after that was attempt to return to their former lives and pick up the pieces. They made no effort to seek publicity for themselves, and for a few more years they mostly remained out of the public spotlight. That is until October 25th, 1965, when a front-page story about them appeared in The Boston Traveler. The story was written by reporter John Luttrell, who had managed to get his hands on some audio recordings of the Hills talking about their abduction. He had also learned about the Hills undergoing hypnotic regression therapy with Dr. Simon. On October 26, the UPI picked up Luttrell's story and suddenly Betty and Barney Hill became international superstars. Betty and Barney were shocked by all the reporters practically knocking down their door trying to get interviews. They were also upset by a number of inaccuracies in Luttrell's reporting. They felt they had no choice after that but to try to set the record straight. In 1966, they worked with author John G. Fuller on his book about their case, The Interrupted Journey. The book became an international bestseller. And from there, the names Betty and Barney Hill were forever enshrined in history as the very first alien abductees. After the book came out, the Hills went on to do a number of television and radio interviews. Barney Hill appeared on the TV game show to tell the truth. Numerous documentaries and even a TV movie were made about the Hills. Their story would go on to inspire pretty much nearly every movie and TV show about alien abductions ever since. But Barney Hill didn't live to see how much his story would go on to influence pop culture. He died on February 25th, 1969 at age 46 of a cerebral hemorrhage. In 1968, an amateur astronomer named Marjorie Fish read Fuller's book, The Interrupted Journey, and became intrigued by the drawing of the star map Betty had sketched out under hypnosis. She wondered if it might be possible to compare that map to known constellations and determine the location of the alien's homeworld. Fish spent months constructing a series of 3D models using threads and beads, Facing Distances on Known Astronomical Calculations After studying thousands of such vantage points, Fish came to the conclusion that the only star system that matched Betty Hill's drawing was that of the binary star system Zeta Reticuli, which was about 39 light-years from Earth. Fish's conclusions intrigued Terence Dickinson, the editor of Astronomy Magazine. He published an article all about Betty and Barney Hill, and in particular about Marjorie Fish's calculations. But it wasn't long after that before a number of noted astronomers, including Carl Sagan, began to poke holes in Fish's conclusions. In a 1980 episode of Cosmos, Sagan demonstrated how Betty Hill's star map and Fish's calculations didn't actually line up all that well. Even Fish herself was forced to concede not long before her death, that her conclusions about Zeta Reticuli were probably wrong. Carl Sagan actually interviewed the Hills years earlier and came away impressed by how sincerely the couple believed what they were saying. Although he also stood firmly in Dr. Simon's camp that there must be some mundane explanation as to why they would come up with such a fanciful tale. Later in life, Betty Hill would go on the circuit, giving lectures at UFO conferences, retelling her story and showing slides of other purported UFOs. But many skeptics have pointed out that a lot of the bright lights and other objects Betty believed to be alien ships were easily debunked as car headlights, earthly satellites, and other natural phenomena. In 1990, writer Martin Kottmeyer even came up with a possible explanation as to where Betty and Barney Hill's description of the ubiquitous gray aliens came from. By now, pop culture is full of images of these slender, bald, big-headed aliens with the enormous cat-like eyes. But Kottmeyer pointed out in an article that just two weeks prior to Betty and Barney's abduction, the science fiction television show The Outer Limits aired an episode titled The Bolero Shield, featuring a bald-headed alien with slitted eyes that does sort of resemble our modern idea of a gray alien. But that being said, if you look up images of the alien in the TV show, it's Really not that close to our modern idea of the Greys. And when questioned about it, Betty insisted she'd never even heard of the program before. Interestingly, one of the most skeptical voices that came out surrounding all this alien business was none other than Betty Hell herself. In her later years, Betty wrote her own book, A Common Sense Approach to UFOs. Betty came to believe the aliens, whom she referred to as astronauts, were actually peaceful beings. After all, she wrote, if they wanted to conquer us, they could easily do it. After Betty and Barney's story became international news, reports of alien abductions went up as much as 2,500%. But it was Betty herself who once told a reporter that the majority of those were just clearly attention seekers, because the numbers just plain didn't make any sense. She estimated that would mean there would have to be between 3,000 to 5,000 abductions each night. Betty said that if there were that many flying saucers up in the sky, that meant there wouldn't be room for planes to fly. Betty Hill died of cancer on October 17, 2004, at age 85. Most skeptics of the Hill's story say there's really no evidence other than their word of what they said happened. And while notable experts, including Carl Sagan, all expressed their belief that the Hills were being sincere in what they thought they'd encountered, most of the scientific experts still hold to the belief that the Hill's story was just that. A made-up story and nothing more. But there's more to the story as well. You see, because there actually was some evidence that the Hills may have been telling the truth. For one thing betty's dress still exists and scientists who have run tests on it did discover trace amounts of some anomalous substances that to this day have never been identified substances that some ufologists have suggested may not be of this earth also remember what i mentioned in the original article about the hills by john fuller well it turns out that fuller was a pretty thorough reporter He actually went out in the field looking for any witnesses who could corroborate Betty and Barney Hill's story. And it turns out he actually found some. Reports claim that Fuller actually located a number of eyewitnesses who saw strange lights over the White Mountains, at the same time the Hills claimed they were being abducted. The problem is we'll never know who those witnesses were. For some reason, none of those eyewitness reports ever made it into Fuller's published article. And when paranormal investigators went looking for Fuller's notes in the newspaper archives, those notes were mysteriously missing. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I want to remind you that if you're looking for even more Conspirators stories to listen to, you can find a huge library of bite-sized mini-episodes over on our Patreon account. Patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, as well as our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help us out is to subscribe and give us a great review wherever you get your podcast. Currently, you can find The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to check us out on social media. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page, you can also send us an old-fashioned email at conspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. I like hearing from you. It's lonely out here in the podcasting void. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.